It's the first point that I've got this morning is, as holy children, you and I must flee from darkness, holy children. Before we have a conversation on sexual immorality and uncleanliness and greed, let me just acknowledge two things. One, many of us come into a sermon like this expecting to get berated and shamed. That's not what I'm doing today. My goal and my desire is not to shame you. But I also think, secondly, it's interesting that before we even get to this point in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul has so thoroughly spoken to the identity of these Gentiles and Jews that there is no question concerning his affection and their place before God. A brief survey, a cursory reading of the first three chapters will find Paul calling these believers in this church at Ephesus the following. He says that they are chosen, that they're holy, that they're blameless, that they're predestined, that they're adopted, that they're blessed, graced, united with Jesus, sealed, that they are his masterpiece. They've been reconciled. They are fellow citizens. They are co-heirs. They are saints and they are loved. Before we ever get to a part, a section that might invoke shame, these are identifying markers Paul uses to describe who they are. Chosen, holy, blameless, loved, graced, saints, co-heirs. This is who they are. This is who they are now in light of who they used to be. Because identity, friends, drives mission. Identity drives mission. Paul, this is their identity. This is who they are versus who they used to be. And Paul, in this discourse, is teaching them, don't go back. Here's what the Gentiles look like. Here's what you used to be like. Here is what you are now. Don't go back. And just like if your child were to be walking headlong onto I-75, you would not simply sit by and allow your child to walk out into traffic. So does this text act as a warning. It's a warning. It's a warning to remember that they are holy children. And he gives three areas to avoid. Sexual impurity, sexual immorality, and uncleanliness. These two things are closely linked together that refer to all forms of extramarital sex and deviant sexual behavior. If you remember, the cult temple of Artemis was a cult temple to the uh, Greek goddess Diana that involved cult prostitution and sex as a part of how people would engage this holy goddess. When you also think about deviant sexual behavior, it is all forms of extramarital sex outside of the context of marriage between a naturally born man and a naturally born woman. It was likely that in a Roman culture, even homosexual sex was seen as part and parcel of life together. And Paul says that those types of sexual acts are to be avoided. 
He goes on to say that greed, which your Bible might term covetousness, to borrow the Old Testament term, is a reference to those who have a strong desire to acquire and keep for themselves more and more money and possessions. Why? Because they love, trust, and obey money and possessions more than they do God. And what this often led to in the early first century church was that the wealthy in these churches would hoard their resources instead of using them to help the working poor. The picture that Paul paints is one of avarice. It's an ancient word. It's an Old Testament word. When we think about the seven deadly sins, that greed, the King James Version, a.k.a. the King Jimmy, uses the word Avarice and avarice is the activity of hoarding and amassing things without having a plan to disseminate them. Paul then goes on to say that there should be no filthiness or foolish talk. There should be no uncouth language. This is obscenity. It's coarse or mean-spirited humor. And these are not fitting for those who are called by Jesus's name. And he also says that these things are out of place. Now, it's interesting to me that in a conversation on language and a conversation on sexual immorality, these two things are linked to form the picture of people who use speech acts and physical acts to gratify themselves. I wonder if you have or know someone, don't look around the room, but I wonder if you know someone who whenever you show up to a social function or a party, they're going to be the center of attention. They're the wise guy. They're the ones cracking jokes. Maybe you know the one who's quick-witted and sharp-tongued to the point that they've always got a word to say. And in each of those cases, it tends to be a person who is drawing the attention to themselves. What is sexual immorality if not the attention to self through self-gratification? What is greed if it is not the care and concern for the other as opposed to the self-gratification of warming ourselves with our stuff? Paul says that rather than these things, there should be thanksgiving, which I'm going to be completely honest. That seems like a really insufficient antidote to all of this. Thanksgiving? So, so, so instead of me making an uncouth joke or uh, me using sarcasm, me using a quick wit and a sharp tongue, I should use thanksgiving. Paul, what in the world do you mean? I think the word thanksgiving hints at the petition in the Greek that we might use in our prayer. Meaning that when we're thankful, when we're prayerfully thankful, the attention goes off of ourselves and goes firmly on to God. There's a Latin phrase that Martin Luther, that reformer, used to use. The Latin phrase is in curvatus se literally meaning curved in onto oneself. A colloquial way or perhaps a contemporary way to explain that would be a navel gazer. 
Imagine living your entire life walking around staring at your belly button. Consequently, there was uh, one time I was, uh, this ain't got nothing to do with nothing. I'm, I'm breaking. Um, it, it is somewhat related. I was uh, sitting at our house in Memphis not long after we got there. And um, I'm typing something. I'm working on something. And Cager, he says, hey, dad, look. I'm like, yeah, 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 give me a minute. He says, no, hey, dad, look. I'm like, I'm like, son, give me five minutes. He's like, no, dad, you really need to look. And so I look over and he's got a Hershey kiss in his belly button. And he smeared the chocolate around his belly button to kind of like hold it in. And then I'm like, all right, this is my boy. Then I turn around. He says, hey, dad, look. So I look up and it's gone. And he says, I ate it. (laughs) I can't mention navel gazing without thinking about him, but... The the idea is someone who's so self-involved that they'll literally bump into everything in their life and not pay attention to anything else. Paul says that Gentiles, who you used to be, the culture at large, only cares about itself and gratifying self. But you should not be so. Your attention should be on thanksgiving. So you take the eyes off of yourself and place them firmly on to God. And when you think about this, it makes sense why Paul is having this conversation because there's an Old Testament picture that's in light here. It is when God gives Israel the law. Why does God give Israel the law? Is God this divine, celestial, eternal buzzkill who wants to limit our fun? Is he a God who is so thoroughly concerned about keeping us in line that it hinders our enjoyment of life? No. God exists in a category of his own. So too should his people which is why he gives the law. One reason is because his people must be wholly distinct from every other people on the planet. At that time, every little region had a God. There was the animistic religions who made a God of the sky and the wind and the grass and and that chair and this carpet. If it had an existence in the world, there was a God that governed it. And here's Yahweh declaring over and against every false God, I and I only am God. And his people should reflect that reality. So Paul then has this conversation about uh, uh, holy living as children of God, because as children of God, we must be those who reflect the character and the nature of God. And these things should not even be named among us, lest we be in contempt of representing a God that doesn't exist. The warning then continues. He says in verse five, for you can be sure that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ of God. In other words, we forfeit our inheritance when we live in unrepentant sin. Now, here's a really important point that I need to make pastorally. 
There is a difference between wrestling with sin and indulging in sin. As believers, there's the reality that we will always be wrestling with sin in some way, shape, form, or fashion. Um, If you're in this room and you're perfect, would you please raise your hand? None of us. And there's a reality in which our very own sanctification, the process of growing up into the image of Jesus necessitates that we sin so that the spirit of God can come and convict, show and teach us how then we are to live. And the reality is that we will always wrestle. And my struggle and my wrestle won't be what yours is. Your struggle and wrestle may not be what ours is, but there is a wrestling with sin, which is different from indulging in sin. And this indulgent, unrepentant lifestyle, friends, is what forfeits us from inheriting the kingdom of God because what we ultimately say is that my self and my happiness, my own will comes before that of God. And at that point, we've set ourselves up to sit in a throne you and I were never meant to sit in. Paul brings in the matter of inheritance, basically saying, and the the opening phrase here in verse five, for you may be sure of this, it's as if he's saying, I really need y'all to get this. I really need you to understand this. This is really important. This is a matter of life and death. If the spirit of God seals you and you are in Christ, and these behaviors are unbecoming and they could bear witness that you don't actually belong to God. The sexually immoral and unclean serve themselves in their own self-gratification. The greedy are idolatrous because they don't love the God who sees and serves and loves the poor, but rather they withhold the resources away from them. And the thing about sin is that it can always lead us and lull us into thinking it's not that bad. Here's the warning. In the words of New Testament scholar Bruce Ware concerning sin, he says the following. If all you lack is an opportunity to, and all you fear are the consequences of, then that sin has you. I'm going to read that again. If all you lack is an opportunity to, and all you fear are the consequences of, then that sin has you. And Paul's next words are, and don't let anyone tell you differently. Don't let anyone convince you that your sin is not that bad. Don't let anyone convince you that your sin is somehow tolerable. And friends, don't let anyone tell you that in order to be a true Christian, you've got to engage in some type of sexual immorality, greed, or uncleanliness. For this, he says, God's wrath is reserved for disobedience. When I think about what God's wrath means, another word to say that is hell. And you know, excuse me, hell and eternal separation from God is actually giving people what they ultimately want. They want to live their lives unencumbered by God's standards, separate from God's presence and away from God's ways. And their reward will be what they've always longed for, 
a life away from God. This is the warning. This is the pastoral warning and admonition. Let these things not even be named among us. If there is a line, don't run all the way up to the line and say, I'm right at the edge. I've got my toe on the edge, but I've not crossed it. Friends, don't even toe the line with sin. But Paul says this, this is not who you are. And I love the shift in the text because now he's shifting and he's talking about holy children, children who live holy and distinct lives. And he's talking about Gentiles who live in a way that doesn't bear witness to who God is. And then he encourages these Gentile believers, secondly, to be children who walk in the light. I like this. Look at it with me. In verse seven, verse seven, therefore, Another way to say that is but. Paul frequently uses these buts in the Bible to signify a change in the course of the conversation. He says, do not become partners with them for at one time you were darkness. Now that's really interesting. That these folks who were in this church were previously the personification of darkness. If every New Testament text has an Old Testament picture, if every New Testament teaching has an Old Testament picture, when you hear darkness, what might you think of? Perhaps you're like me and you thought of the ninth plague, which was the plague of darkness over all of Israel, or excuse me, Egypt, where over, it, where over Egypt there was abject darkness, but in Goshen there was light. There was a demarcated line upon which God caused the light to shine and the darkness to fall. And this was no ordinary darkness. I like the way that Lynn Kohick describes that darkness in her commentary on Ephesians when she says that this judgment was a darkness that could be felt. So dark The people could not see each other and had to remain in their homes for three days. This tangible darkness, so thick it had substance, is what she says concerning Ephesians 5, is the thundercloud that encompassed the idolater. It's a darkness that is tangible. It's a darkness so thick. Imagine having to stay at home for three days because you quite literally can't see where you're at. I don't think Tom Brady made it three days at home. Paul says that the Gentiles walk in this darkness. They live in this darkness and you were darkness. Now these are shouting words because I like that word were, you were darkness. There was one point in time where we were walking according to our own ways, curved in on ourselves saying, hey, dad, look at my belly button. But there came a point when God in Christ lifted our heads to see what was really true, namely Christ, his person, his work, the savior who atones for our sins and offers grace upon grace upon grace for us. Such was I walking in darkness away from God, strangers and aliens to the covenant of promise. But in walked a man named Jesus and friends, he changed everything. 
I love that this is who I was. This is my story and this is my song. If you want to to be really honest, one of the best ways that we can share our faith is to tell people just how bad we were. And then at a certain point, we meet Jesus and now we get to tell him just how good he is. I love this testimony. He says, this was you. In the book of Corinthians, he says, such were some of you. But there he says, you've been washed. You've been washed. And here he says, but now you are light in the Lord. Light, light, light. Light's such an interesting phenomenon. Uh, Light is necessary for growth. Things that grow in darkness tend to be fungal. They tend to be a bit poisonous. Things that grow in the light tend to be not only edible, but life-giving. There's that intercell, interplant cell phenomenon called photosynthesis, and in which plants take CO2, they turn it into oxygen, and it allows us to breathe, it allows them to continue to eat, and for the functions of a plant to grow, and all of it is dependent upon light. I love light because in light things grow. Paul links light with fruit. He says, you're children of light. He says, for fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. There is a light that we must walk in. Now, um, I I don't know if you've ever been in a pitch black room, okay? But when you're in a pitch black room, uh, there's one thing that I crave in a pitch black room, and that is light. Uh, many of us, don't, don't admit or raise your hand, many of us were f- afraid of the dark and some of us might still be afraid of the dark. And there's an aspect of darkness that craves to be lit up. But whenever you're walking into or out of a dark room, it is not the darkness that spills over into the light. It is the light that breaks into the darkness. There's a reality in which light is a more powerful agent than even darkness, and the light itself causes and produces fruit. In other words, here's the point of this entire text, friends. Your life should serve as a stark contrast between the world and the things of Christ. That is the point. In the same way that the Old Testament law made God's people distinct, so too should you walking in the light make you a stark contrast between the things of God and the things of the world. What was that old Jars of Clay song? I want to be in the light as you are in the light. I want to shine like stars in heaven. Oh, Lord, be my light and be my salvation. All I want is to be in the light. Y'all know that song. Some of y'all like But that's the, that's the call. It's to walk in the light. And to walk in the light is to walk in power. To walk in the light is to walk in contrast. To walk in the light is to walk giving an example. To walk in the light is to preach a message, which is why how Christians live matters so much because we either bear witness to the God that we serve or we win people to ourselves. And sometimes there's nothing more uplifting at a time like this. And I don't know what kind of condemnation might be sitting on you, but I know what I felt this week. And sometimes there's nothing more uplifting than a good hymn at the right time. And when I think about a good hymn at the right time, I think 
about those words penned all those years ago, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come. Let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. There is a hope. And Paul, in verse 14, goes from Paul and turns into a psalmist when he begins to speak about the role that Christ plays in the church and that the church plays in the world. Third and finally, this morning, it is a call to expose darkness by being light. Expose darkness by being light. Uh, To expose here reminds me of what it was like at the skating rink on Friday and Saturday nights. Do y'all remember the skating rink? Several of y'all were here when this church met in a skating rink a long time ago. I used to love going to the skating rink. I used to love going to the skating rink and bringing my skates. I learned how to skate on quads and later I got a pair of rollerblades for Christmas, some brand new crispy joints. You couldn't tell me nothing. You get to the skating rink and you know, you know what I'm saying, your friend's going to be there, your boys, your partners, your homies going to be there. You also know it's going to be some very beautiful young ladies there. When you're 13, there is nothing more important in the world than getting to the skating rink and looking clean. You walk in with the fresh, crispy shoes. You got your crispy fit, your outfit on. You got your skates with you. And like, you better be able to skate because if you can't skate, don't step out on, there, on, on that rink. Because you're going to get embarrassed and she's going to think you a fool. So you better know what you're doing. But the thing that was the worst feeling in the world about being at the skating rink is walking into the skating rink. And you go from light into dark. And all of a sudden, you realize when you look down, you got a massive stain on your shirt that you didn't see before. But what illuminated it? That black light. And you look down at your pants, you got lint all on your pants. And then you look at your shoes. And then all of a sudden, you think you look good, but there's light that exposes the blemishes that you couldn't see before. I wonder if somebody might go with me this morning. The role that light plays is that it reveals the hidden things that we try to cover up, but they will not be hidden for long. There are things that we have tried to hide, but friends, we will not be able to hide them long. In other words, we must be very proficient at telling secrets on ourselves. Because if we don't tell on ourselves, the Holy Spirit will tell on us. There is an aspect that light does when it reveals something, where I like what Paul says in verse 13, that these hidden things become visible. Now, there's some tension here because there are two predominant interpretations of what it means to expose something by light. One of those is the confrontational method of uh, of us speaking the truth to our neighbor and speaking the truth to one another. And I think that that application has been taken out of context and been used by many self-righteous Pharisees who want to point out the speck in a bunch of other people's eyes and forget and ignore the log in theirs. Okay, let me say that. But there's also a more ancient understanding, which was that the very lives that Paul is encouraging them to live act as light 
light up darkness and expose the things around them. Meaning that the Christian life should be so essentially different from those around you that you shouldn't have to tell somebody you're a Christian. The way you live speaks loud enough. And it acts as the black light for those who are around you. Just as the sun illuminates the darkness, the moonlight illuminates the night, the light itself doesn't announce that it's light. It just is. And Paul says that you are light. You just are. I love this. Beautiful things don't call attention to themselves. Beautiful things just are. Friend, if you're the masterpiece of God, if you are light, we should not call attention to ourselves. We just are. It's the difference between someone who tells you how much they love God and someone who shows you how much they love God. And he turns into a psalmist and he begins to sing. I'm almost finished. He begins to sing here in verse 14 and he takes a popular verse out of Isaiah and he forms a hymn out of it. And this is Isaiah speaking in the darkness of a future hope after Northern Israel has been conquered by Assyria. As Sargon II comes into Assyria in 722 and he rips Assyria out of Israel's control and Assyria takes over Northern Israel. Isaiah in the midst of darkness, abject darkness, hopeless. Northern Israel is over. God's temple has been ransacked. We are done and undone. God speaks these words through Isaiah. He says, arise and shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord is upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness but the Lord will rise upon you. His glory will be seen upon you. Nations shall come to your light and kings shall come to the brightness of your rising. I love this. In the darkest moment of Israel's history, God speaks a word of light into the darkness and says that it may be dark now, but it won't be dark always. In other words, I like this. He tells them that darkness has an expiration date. He tells them that his promises are sure and steadfast, that God would deliver them from darkness into light. This is Colossians 1 verse 14 when Paul says that God in Christ has rescued us from the domain of darkness and delivered us into the kingdom of his marvelous son. That there is light here. And what is the culmination of all of the exile and all of the darkness, it is this church and it is the church. Jesus said that his people would act as a city on a hill, act as a light. Do you hide a light under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. There's an aspect of being light that's undeniable. And there's an aspect of being light where the nations are drawn to the light. Imagine the whole world in pitch black darkness. No lights anywhere. Like moths to a flame will people be drawn to the light. So too is Roswell, Georgia. What kind of light are we? 
Are we the single light from a matchstick? Or are we a lighthouse that draws the nations to come and bask in the safety, in the goodness, in the righteousness and truth of the light? Sometimes after hearing a sermon like this, you need to hear words of a hymn to encourage your, yourself. As I'm thinking about the words of that hymn we even recited earlier, when that author says, my sin, oh, the bliss of that glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to a cross and I bear it no more. Even so, it is well with my soul. Let me just encourage you. Let me speak the truth to you. Perhaps you've come in here and maybe you're falling under the weight of condemnation and there's a word of the Holy Spirit in you calling you, entreating you to stop, to cease and desist of certain sin. I don't want to get in the way of that. But one of the things that we can be sure of is that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Friends, there is grace for you. God is not mad at you waiting to strike you down dead. No, he is a good God, a good father who gives good gifts and wants to be kind and gracious. And at the same time, some of y'all are about to run into I-75 and y'all need to be pulled back. Stop it. And it's only because the Lord loves you. There is always the opportunity to come home, to repent and believe. And if you're here and you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, that opportunity is open for you to repent, to turn from your ways and to believe on Jesus Christ and receive his grace. Our church will not be like Judges 19. That type of darkness will not live here, but instead we will be those who will be a harbor and safe haven for those fleeing darkness to be light in the world so that people who come in contact with us might say, there is God. Let's pray. At the end of every service, at the end of every sermon, I believe that God's word demands a response. And as such, it demands that we take some time to reorient our hearts and our lives around the things of the Lord. So let's take the next few moments, however the spirit of God is leading you to respond to his word in the way in which he's asking and inviting us to. Father, I remember where I was when you came to me. I remember where I was when you opened my eyes to see what was actually happening. And I remember what it was like when rather than condemnation and the shame and the guilt that I felt you showed me that shame and guilt and condemnation was already laid on Jesus. I didn't have to carry it. Lord, I pray that a similar freedom might pervade and invade this place. 
Yes, you've called us to live distinct, but you've not called us to live distinct in a guilty or shame-filled manner. No, you've called us to live distinct and free. So Father, would we be light in what we say and do according to the example of your son and that he set for us. So would you come and do these things even as we sing unto you? Make our hearts glad, remind us of the truth that we might live faithfully forevermore. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.